0: Uh, today it's going to be brought to us by Mr. Uh, Reg Nolan, and his message is entitled, Strategies of the Enemy. Our enemy did everything he can, I think, to try to prevent me from giving this message too. <laughs> All right. Um, in case you missed it last week. Matthew had woven a theme through the praise and worship service dealing with the Christian journey, much of which involves fighting battles against Satan and our own human nature. And yes, we are at war, whether we choose to fight or not. We cannot be conscientious objectors in this battle. We are warriors or we are casualties, one of the two. One of our tasks as Christian warriors is to be a watchman in the darkness, now, since I'm naturally nocturnal, everyone knows that, then I take that commission kind of rather personally. Indeed, we are charged with, a, with warning others of the wiles of the devil. So today, I'd like to expose a few of his strategies that the enemy uses to try to subdue us. First, a warning. Let us acknowledge the fierce power of our adversary and equip ourselves accordingly. In Ephesians 6, of course, verse 11 through 13, it says, to take on the whole armor of God. So let's read that together. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to, st- to withstand in the, day, in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Okay. Strategy one, appeal of temptations. Satan's weapon of choice, 75% of the time, is simple temptation because it is so effective against individuals in the short game and is used as a shield buster to allow other strategies to later penetrate. A few weeks ago, um, Steve gave a message on temptation. And I said, again, watching him just use up scripture after scripture that I was planning to use. Last week, Matthew did the same with Romans 8. So, I mean, it's it's awkward here. But so between the two of them, they exhausted many of the scriptures that I had planned to use. I will repeat some of them in the course to reiterate some key points, but I try to go to other sources as well. However, there is a point about temptation that we seem to be overlooking. Temptation works only because it appeals to something that God created in us for good. Did you understand that? It appeals to something in us that God created for us for good, but has been perverted into something evil. For example... God has, gave us a, has given us a marvelous buffet of food and drink rich in variety for us to nourish ourselves and make. on top of that, he's made that food very tasty and very appealing to us, very pleasurable so that we would grow and feed ourselves and develop in the fully adult human uh, children. Okay. Uh, but Satan has perverted that natural desire for food and drink into the temptations of gluttony and drunkenness. So he's taken something that is natural, something that is good, something that is positive, that God created in us deliberately so that we would grow and benefit and perverted it into something that is uh, effectively evil. He has perverted the natural desire of her human nature into temptations that lead to the sins of gluttony and drunkenness, unhealthy behaviors that will eventually destroy us. Similarly, God gave us a natural attraction to the opposite sex so that we might find love, marry, have children, build stable families, and wish to rear those children to enlarge his family. However, Satan has again transformed that natural affection into sexual temptations that lead to lust, porn addictions, fornication, adultery, sodomy, and at the extreme ends, rape and murder. He has taken what God has intended to be a positive bond and an expression of love to secure families together and perverted it into a meaningless act of self-gratification. Likewise, it is a natural uh, God-given instinct for man to want to work and to be self-sufficient and to provide for his family and to protect for the family when it is threatened. Scripture also seems to endorse capitalism and a free enterprise, given the morals implied by the parables of the talents and things of that nature. But Satan has twisted this natural instinct to provide for our families into greed, which is avar- avarice and covetousness, into competitiveness, backstabbing, slander, and murder at the extreme, or irresponsible laziness Slawfulness at the other. He has inverted our natural desire to worship God into a desire for the works of our own hands, as sins of idolatry and hubris. So instead of naturally, we want to worship something. There's an inborn instinct in man to worship something. But instead of worshiping God, he has perverted it into worshiping the works of our own hands. It could be computers, it could be uh, idols, or anything of this nature. But it becomes idolatry in the process. In each case, he has taken something originally created and intended as good, and perverted it into something to raise the self above all else at the expense of all else. That's how how the temptation, sin, death avalanche works. With the, the aggrandizement of the self when once it starts it's very very difficult to stop we are weak in areas of temptation because we have a natural god-given affinity for those things in which we are deficient and satan has exploited that design component to bring about our destruction we are also able we are to resist temptation and sin sorry we were to resist temptation and sin not just because it pleases god for us to do so but in order to avoid the snares that will lead to our own demise. God wants his children to survive so he has given us instructions on what to do in order to avoid uh, and what, on what to avoid in order that we might live life more abundantly turn to James 1 12 to 15 blessed is the man who endures temptation because having been approved he will receive the crown of life we just sang about crowns of life uh, which the Lord has promised to to those who love him, let no one being tempted say, "I am tempted of God, for God is not tempt, tempted by evils, and he tempts no one, but let each one but each one is tempted by his lust, being drawn away and seduced by them. Then, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, when sin is finally, is fully formed, it brings forth death. so there is a sequence there is while the th- Sins themselves may not be deadly. They lead to death in the process. For when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when fully formed, brings forth death. Psalm 39.4 points out how frail we are. Jehovah, make me to know my end and the mastery of my days for what it is. Know how frail I am. We are a frail frame of dust. We are little more than grains of sand in this great universe actually we would be minuscule but by by scale Uh, Matthew uh, 26 41 watch and pray that you enter not into temptation the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and we can all testify to how weak the flesh really is all right uh, Romans 8 this is the one that Matthew took from me last week, but we'll go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, Romans 8, 3 through 9. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For they that... who. Uh, For they who are according to the Spirit, mind the things. Let me read it off the back wall. It'll be easier for me to see. Uh, For they who uh, who are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they who are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then, they, are, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, then he is none of his. All right. Uh, next, uh, another long passage. But again, Romans has a lot to say about this, this idea of temptation. To, uh, Romans 6. Uh, verses 12 to 23. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lust. Do not yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but yield yourself to God as one alive from the dead, as your members are instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Okay, but you do do you not know that whom you yield yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to him whom you obey, whether it is a, of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. But thanks be to our God that you are that you were the slaves of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that that form of doctrine that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Then, being made free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. I speak in the manner of men because of the weakness of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members as slaves to uncleanness and to uh, lawless act, unto lawless act, even so now yield your members as slaves to righteousness unto holiness. For when were you slaves of sin? You were free from righteousness. What fruit did you ha- uh, have then in those things Of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death for now being made free from sin and having become slaves to God you have your uh, your fruit to holiness and the end of everlasting life for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord effectively we're going to be slaves to somebody or something why not make it to Christ and be slaves unto righteousness instead of being slaves unto sin whose end there is death? Um, the scripture that Steve gave last time, I like. I hadn't seen that one before. Proverbs 27 uh, 20. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never full. We are constantly envying, constantly striving, constantly wanting something that we cannot have. Right, uh, one more long passage, and we'll go on to second, his second strategy. Okay, uh, two more passages. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And he has made you alive, who were once dead in trespasses and sin, in whom, in which you, in which you uh, once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom uh, we also had our way of life in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the thoughts, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, which he has given us even when we were dead in sin, he has made us alive with, uh, with Christ by the grace that you are saved and has raised us up, together and made us sit in heavenly places in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the, his, the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, and it is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Okay, that seems to be a major theme that he addresses to all Of the churches that he's dealing with there is however something that he holds out as a hope for us and this is in first corinthians 10 uh, 12 to 13. so let him who thinks that he he stands take heed lest he fall no temptation has taken you but what is common to man but god is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that which is you you are able boy i'm so glad of that Uh, but with temptation he will also make a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. Okay. So our first first strategy is the temptation, the, the appeals to the things that we naturally desire, but which have been perverted into uh, something abominable. All right. Strategy number two: the trials, temptations, and hardships, like what I'm having to go through this morning, trying to speak with you. Uh, second. Satan's second major strategy is to burden an individual with so many trials and hardships that the individual eventually collapse and give up the fight under the stress of the difficulty. This is an attempt to break us. This is persecution. Again, Satan is trying to exploit the elements of our design to bring about our destruction, to see how much we can endure before, as Job said to, or Job's friend said, to curse God and die, to escape torment. Truly, we as human beings have physical, mental, and emotional limits. We can do, endure only so much physical pain. We can suffer only so much mental anguish, so much emotional d- despair before we collapse. I take solace in that promise that of the First Corinthians that God will not allow us to be tempted or tested beyond that which we are able to bear. But in honesty, in comparison to the figures from scriptures, we are soft today. We are really, really soft and easy pickings. Um, look at Hebrews 11, a faith chapter, verses 32 to, 30, let, 32 to 40. Let's see what kind of things they, they had to do in the past and how, how do we stand up against that. And what more shall I say? From, for the time should fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, Wrought righteousness, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the uh, strangers. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scur- uh, scourging. Yes, more of bonds than, and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sought into, were tempted, were slain with the sword. And they wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, did not receive the promise, for God had provided some better things for, for us. That they should um, not be made perfect without us interestingly this is the strategy of Satan that fails most often as strange as that may sound it fails as often as it succeeds truly it quickly prunes away the weak but it also strengthens the faithful what the devil never counted on is that we flawed human beings reason something like this if I'm in having to endure the trial then God must think that I can take it. If he thinks that I can take it, then he must have faith in me. Therefore, I must be stronger than I am. Do you see the cycle that's going on here? So that the the trial in itself strengthens the faith instead of breaking it. In the process if the trial passes then we see its passing as a validation of our faith if it intensifies then we see it as an affirmation that God has even more faith in us than we had anticipated okay either way the devil doesn't win this one because the attack comes from without instead of from within so it's no wonder that Peter said in first Peter 4 12 to 13 Beloved, do not be astonished at the fiery trial which is to try you as though a strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice according to you, according as you are partakers in Christ's suffering, for, so that when his glory shall, shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Earlier uh, Peter earlier Peter reminded us in, verse, in chapter one verses three to nine. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his mercy has rendered, uh, regenerated us again through a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, unfading, reserved for you in heaven by the power of God, having been kept through faith unto salvation, uh, ready to be revealed in the last time, in which you greatly re- uh, rejoice yet a little while. If need be, you're grieving in manifold temptations so that the trial of your faith being more precious than that of gold that perishes but being proven through fire might be found to uh, praise and to honor and to glory at the resurrection, a uh, revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love and in whom not seeing you but believing in him, you exalt with ex- unspeakable joy. Having been glorified, obtaining the ends of your uh, end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. The analogy is made is that all of our temptations, uh, our trials, and things that we go through are like um, stubble and precious metals and things that are set in on a plate and then set ablaze. And whatever remains becomes then the the reward of the individual. So the trials that we go through are designed to purify. And to cleanse us, to burn off the uh, the rust, uh and and to um, to make us better as overall. Uh, James agrees with this same, same idea. James one. Oh, um, James one uh, verses two to ten. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into diverse kind. Con- kinds of uh, temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience, But let patience have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to you all liberally, but with no reproach that it shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith, doubting nothing, for he, doubts, he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven by the wind t- uh, and tossed. Do not let any man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, not dependable in all his ways. But let the humble brother rejoice in exultation, and let the rich one rejoice in humiliation, humiliation, because he has passed away as the flower of the grass. Now, this leads to Satan's third strategy, which is doubt, doubt and confusion. In the last three verses, James has touched upon st- Satan's ma- ma- third major strategy. Doubt, a lack of f- faith, and confusion. In this strategy, Satan is more cunning for, the lack, um, for an attack from without, only makes us stand their ground only more firmly. But an attack from within, making us doubt our belief, undermines our footing. It was such a doubt, such a lack of faith that let Peter slip below the waves that even hindered Jan- Jesus from doing any great miracles in his hometown and that prevented the apostles from healing or casting out demons. It is this waning of faith that prompted Christ to ask in Luke 18:8. 8, Yet when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? That's a p- tough question. If when Jesus comes back, will he find faith on this earth? Will he find the belief? It's the most subtle and perverse, uh, pervasive strategy, eating away of it. It's like a cancer eating us from the inside out, like a trickle of groundwater eroding away the footings of our funda- uh, foundational beliefs. And if that foundation crumbles, will not the castle collapse like a house of cards? Today, we are inundated with attacks on every front. A, uh, upon our faith. We live in an age prospering from the benefits of scientific advancement, affirming many, but not all, of the scientific theories that they at every turn. How do we reconcile apparent contradictions between what Scripture says and the evidence presented by archaeologists, geologists, and physicists? Do we doubt even for a moment the veracity of a belief? When scholars unearth lost manuscripts, such as the book of Enoch, or the gospel of Mary Magdalene, or the gospel of Thomas, that contain accounts and beliefs contrary to ours, do we consider them seriously? Do we question their authenticity? Do we dismiss them out of hand? What do we do? Do you realize that according to the gospel of Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene was supposed to have been a Phoenician princess who married Jesus? That's had amount to blasphemy, isn't it? But that's what this particular gospel says. And, and the gospel uh, the book of Enoch uh, proclaims ancient alien astronauts coming down to seed the, the, the planet with, uh, 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 with a human being and to manipulate the DNA of the people here. A lot of it is suspect, their interpretation, but it is really strange. It's no wonder that these books were not included in the authorized canon because um, their, their, their authenticity is suspect. But ne- nevertheless, these books are out there, and what happens when they are presented to people as competing evidence? Do we not, it, uh, does it not bring up some doubt? And it's the doubt that is the, the idea behind all this. Uh, it is that methodology of doubt as the, one of the most powerful of our enemy strategy. A little over two years ago, I presented a message, a two part message, as a matter of fact, on the methodology of doubt. And obviously, I, since it was a two part message then, I can't include it here now. Uh, I will refer you to that if you want to look at it for a more, more detailed dis- discourse. Um, it's called The Methodology of Doubt, if you want to. Uh, uh, Hear about more. I I cannot understate that in the sorry, I'm short of breath today. I cannot understate that that doubt is a most insidious strategy. The wiles of the devil are strong, but we do have a defense against it. Our first defense is our God given rational mind, provided that we haven't polluted it with fables and stupid stations, and that allows us to see through many of these. Assault. Second, we have the Holy Spirit working through our conscience to guide us away from such doubt, provided that we haven't shut out that still small voice with a din of confusion. And third, we have the Holy Scriptures, this, as our shield against such attacks. But interestingly enough, it takes an act of faith to use the Scriptures to be a defense against the attack on the act of faith. It's interesting, it's, it's a circular argument here. Uh, More importantly, we have an ever-faithful, loving, and covenant-keeping, very important these covenant-keeping, lawful, law-abiding God, who, like a father with outstretched arms, is ready and willing to take back his prodigal children when they have strayed, if they would but turn away and repent from their wicked ways. But again, it takes an act of faith to believe this attack against the act of faith. All right. Strategy four. I'm running out of time. Okay, let me just mention, a, a, I'm just going to, to go through here and uh, highlight some of the different strategies without giving all the scripture references behind them. The fourth strategy is denial and contradiction. Even in the face of overwhelming evidence, he just denies it. And, of course, we know that the Satan is the father of lies. Um, John 8 uh, 44 tells us he is the father of lies and, and you are the, uh, he condemns the people for being the children of the father of the devil who is the father of lies. Um, he is so powerful, Revelation twelve nine says he deceives the whole world. Uh, it's a favorite old politician that said if you repeat a lie long enough, often enough, and convincingly enough, eventually it becomes the truth. That's the politicians' creed. That's exactly what governments do, that's what Catholicism has done, what evolutionary theorists have done, and what Satan has done. So that today, it's difficult to distinguish truth from lies, uh, even for the very elect, or even the care to do so. We've just gone through the season of winter festivals, um, and it is a testimony to how steeped in lies and confusion this world is and no one seems to care that it's a lie. That's the bad thing, no one seems to care. They dismiss the inconsistencies with a wave of the illusionist's hand and go, oh, it's magic, as if magic were an excuse or, or, or justification for deception. It's hard for me to condemn them, though, for they are deceived by the great deceiver himself and it's made manifest by the, 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 the media of our age, virtual reality, special effects, movies about vampires, witches, and wizards, and fantasy worlds, they all depicted with greater detail than some of their lives have. So how, how can we really condemn them? It is no wonder they escape into these worlds instead of living uh, in this one and being diligent enough to dig for the truth. We can no longer believe the truth. They aren't, they, some of them no longer believe in truth at all. They believe in perception only. They think all truth is relative, which is itself a contradictory statement, but it's another They think all truth is relative. We live in a world of confusion, and we know, of course, that God is not the author of confusion. Okay, if you want more on lies and deception, I did another message, another two-parter on the greatest lie ever told. You might want to look at that one as well. Um, fifth strategy. I'm trying to hurry on these. Fifth strategy is, often runs concurrently with the fourth is to counterfeit or to substitute an imitation for the real. I love Matthew's word for this, pre-corruption, he calls it, pre-corruption. It is to prepare cent- years, decades, centuries in advance an, a counterfeit, an imitation of something so that when the re- genuine article arrives on the scene, the genuine article is taken as the counterfeit instead of the one that was created before. It's a marvelous strategy, deceitful as all it anyway. Uh For example, hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, several mythical figures appeared in history all claiming to have similar characteristics. They were a great teacher, a warrior. Several claimed to be born of a virgin, born around December 23rd. On the traditional day, birthday of the sun, they were endowed with magical powers. They were sacrificed for the people. They were resurrected as the sun god. And that happens a lot in in true history. Such figures include Mithras, Gilgamesh, Tammuz, Osiris, Apollo, Adonis, Krishna, Thor, and many, many others. Incidentally, all of them had uh, received this, uh, are involved with a symbol. that was some variation of the cross involved in it, too. These figures also had festivals that were associated with them that appealed to the sensuality of the followers, and they were, they've been assimilated into the Christmas and Easter pageants today, and they've been sanitized and adopted by Catholic Protestant Christianity. And how can the truth, which is not very appealing uh, to the senses, compete with such uh, frivolity? We have the question. And then strategy six, this last one I'll have time to mention. Um, Satan's sixth strategy involves how the confusion that comes from the earlier strategies. His strategy is divide and conquer. Uh, One of the greatest threats to the survival of God's church right from the very beginning until today has always been divisions and splits. In particular, Paul had difficulty with several of the churches with whom he corresponded over this one issue, so much so that he had to sternly rebuke them. I'm not going to go through all the scripture references for them, but I'll give them to you for you to look up on your own. First one, Romans 16, verses 17 to 18, if you want to look up that one. Then 1 Corinthians 1, 9 to 13. And then 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 11. Uh, And then finally in the 11th chapter of Corinthians, he lets them have it. Um, 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 16 and 19. In all of these cases, the churches are being split. They're breaking into factions and saying, I am of I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. And it didn't really matter who was right or wrong, but what was mattering was the strivings and the envyings and the confusion and the discard that that division was causing within the church and and paul finally got really fed up with it um so important is the idea of unity that abraham lincoln cited the passage in matthew uh, 12 verse 25 i will quote this one jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them it's almost as if jesus were anticipating the problem that would occur in the church later on jesus knew their thoughts and he said unto them Every kingdom is divided against itself, is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. This was so important that Abraham Lincoln cited this passage in his speech before the Illinois State Republican Convention in June of 1858 as a bold moral stand against uh, slavery. Now, while there may be justifiable reasons for church splitting, and that's true, there's sometimes that it needs to split, it is better, it is generally better to resolve the strife and stay together than to fall victim to Satan's strategy of divide and conquer. Rather, we should heed the old maxim that I like here, that it says that um, two together can stay warm under a single quilt, but each alone under half a quilt will freeze. Our adversary, this is the final, he always has a backup strategy. He always has a backup strategy. He has many weapons in his arsenal. I've only given you six today. Uh, but he has a fallback plan even if they fail. Uh, if nothing else uh, works against us, the devil is very good at making us waste our time. Besieging us with petty little tasks that do not help us to develop, but only waste our energies, he can create an air of apathy and futility where we just don't want to do anything but sit and sleep our lives away, so that we are uh, so even simple chores get left undone. He can get us addicted to meaningless games and TV shows. He can kill us softly with inactivity. Don't fall victim to. Satan's strategies don't get caught by the beast.